you could be seated. And if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis 14. The Bible is anything but boring for those who will keep reading it and keep coming back to it and give attention to it. The Bible is full of surprises. Even for those of us who have read the Bible through more than once, we still come to portions of Scripture that surprise us, leave us slack-jawed, shaking our heads, laughing, and then sometimes ransacking other parts of the Bible to make sense of the whole. As Charles Spurgeon once said, no one outgrows Scripture. It widens and deepens with our years. And St. Augustine said, and he said this of one specific portion of Scripture, though it's true for all of Scripture, he said, it is simple enough to wade in, but deep enough to drown in. And so I wonder, Christian, does the Bible still surprise you? Does the Bible still, from time to time, blow your hair back? Again, Spurgeon said, The words of Scripture thrill my soul as nothing else ever can. They bear me aloft or dash me down. They tear me in pieces and they build me up. Now, if you're not a Christian, not a Christian yet, I wonder if you think the Bible is just some book of fables, a book of morals and rules, or a, a book that's just irrelevant and out of date, of no real use today. Well, it is an ancient book, but we also believe that it is a living book, that it is alive, and so it is a thrilling book, and it is a relevant book. We believe that in it, God even today, speaks afresh when we come to it. We've seen as Christians that this Bible is put together masterfully. It is divinely constructed. It's what we need. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And what God has for us today in Genesis 14 is a weird and wonderful portion of scripture. It's a chapter that you wouldn't see coming in your first read through the Bible. It's a chapter that you might have forgotten about since your last read through Genesis. It's a chapter quite different than everything that came before it in Genesis. It's a chapter of several firsts, a chapter of surprises. It's a chapter of mysteries that will take us to the other end of the Bible by the time we're done. So let's read it. Genesis 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kador Leomer, king of Elam, and Tadal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Barah, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemabar, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bala, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea, 
Twelve years they had served Kedar Leomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedar Leomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphaim, the Ashtaroth Karnim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavakariatham, and the Horites in their hill country of Sair, as far as El Parah on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, the king of Balah, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedar Leomer, king of Elam, Tadal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and Honor. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedor Leomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let honor, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. Well, I'm glad I'm done reading that. <laughs> God's word is fascinating, but it's not always easy to read. Did you notice that this chapter is teeming with kings? Kings all over the place. Over 25 times we find that word, king. We have worldly kings warring with each other. And then we have a king-like one who steps on the scene, 
And then we have another king that surprises or surpasses even the greatness of that great king. And all of this anticipates the arrival one day of a final king. There are three parts to the story, and then we'll have a fourth point that'll take us outside the book of Genesis. So first, we see worldly kings making war. The first 12 verses give us this dizzying narrative of kings, alliances, and battles. And we don't need to know all of the people, all of the places. We don't need to piece together everything, let alone to know the historical background of these people and places. But we can piece together some basics that I think will help us. These are real people. These are real places. This really happened. This is real history. In these days, there were big-time kings and small-time kings. And the small-time kings were probably more like what we think of as a mayor. These were city-state-like things called the leaders of those places, kings. But we probably don't think of kings as ruling over such small territories. Nevertheless, big-time kings would often overtake and subjugate small-time kings. And then sometimes those oppressed small-time kings and kingdoms would rise up. They would revolt against their overlords. And that's what we have here. We have four big-time kings that had been subjugating five small-time kings for 12 years. But in the 13th year, the five small-time kings joined forces and revolted against the big-time kings. Of course, as we'd expect, that wasn't the end of it. The four big-time kings don't tolerate that, and so the next year they aligned themselves, and now with the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah getting involved, and they go after those who revolted, and it's an ugly scene. Kings and their people on the run, some falling into tar pits, a few of them barely escaping with their lives, many of them killed with the sword, many others taken into captivity, whole towns and families plundered, families torn apart, homes ravaged and ransacked. It's an ugly scene. Now, before we get to the most significant part of the story, uh, really the reason why it's in our Bibles, we should just stop here to ponder a few things that sit on face value. Like, like this. Here we have just another historic example, one of thousands in history, of kings being kings. Kings gonna king each other. That's what they do. To paraphrase James 4, he said, why do wars and quarrels exist? It's because people want, they crave, and they don't have, and so they fight, and they kill. 
This may be the first instance of warring kingdoms in the Bible, but it is certainly not the last. It is simply a reality of this fallen world. Jesus said, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, it's not the end times, it's the normal times. So wars in the Middle East today, tensions between countries, standoffs like what's going on in Ukraine, the world wars, all those are very sad, but they shouldn't surprise us. Not theologically, they shouldn't. Genesis 14 shouldn't surprise us. Another thing we learn here is that we should praise God for when governments and territories are remotely stable. Think of Romans 13. God intends for there to be human governments to suppress wickedness and promote peace and flourishing. So praise God, Canada stays up there. And praise God, Texas doesn't try to overtake New Mexico or the rest of the United States. You know they would. You, you Texans, you know. Praise God, Albuquerque and Rio Rancho are not in a fight. I mean, seriously, that's not a given. But praise God where it's real and it happens. Praise God that most of us didn't get raided and ransacked last night. Praise God that most of us have not endured the havoc and the uncertainty and the pain of something like Genesis 14. Another thing we see, though, is that God is sovereign over all world affairs, small and big, bad and good. God is in it. He, he's the hidden architect and orchestrator behind the chaos that seems to be on our page. Now, we don't often know what God is up to in any one current event or historical event. But God is up to things. And he is up to a million things at once at any one given time. We can't even comprehend that. Things don't just happen. God is sovereign over all world affairs. God has purposes here. He's doing something that the nations don't know. It wasn't just unfortunate warring between petty kings. Verse 11 and 12 clues us into just one purpose that God had for the seeming chaos so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they went their way. This speaks to the consequences of Lot's bad decision back in chapter 13. Remember from last week, Lot chose to take his family and herds to the fertile, rich lands to the east. He viewed the situation not with the eyes of faith, not with the promises of God, but what looked best for him in that alone. He parted from Uncle Abram and parted from the company of the promises of God. 
He parted from the Abrahamic covenant when he went east. He he knew full well, just like everyone did. It was famous that the people of Sodom, as it said in chapter 13, verse 13, the people of Sodom were very wicked. And so his move to Sodom was not like whether or not you choose to relocate to Colorado. It was deliberate sin. And he thought that moving to Sodom would provide ease and comfort, opportunity and wealth. And then one day, he was all of a sudden caught up in this geopolitical mayhem. Four kings against five. And the big time kings with much of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, they plundered and carted off into slavery Lot's whole family. What we reap, what we sow, that we will also reap. Sin does have consequences. Genesis 14 is not in our Bibles for simply the historical record of some warring kings. It's here, and it comes after Genesis 13 specifically to show us that Lot's sin led him into trouble. The citizens of these towns, Sodom and Gomorrah, the headlines of the Sodom Times, if they had a newspaper, would have assumed that Lot and his clan, if they covered the story, Lot and his clan were merely unfortunate pawns caught up in the much bigger geopolitical affairs. But actually, the kings were the pawns. God was not only showing Lot, and by extension us, the consequences of sin, But he was also showing Lot and us, the readers, God's kindness and mercy and power in an undeserved rescue. That's what comes next. Secondly, a surprising warrior king. And let's just read verses 13 to 16 again. The one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the yokes of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Honor. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born of his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus, way up north. And then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. I mean, this just is begging for a Peter Jackson movie, a nine-parter. He could separate them out and tell the story that slow. There's a lot going on there, and it is magnificent. I don't know what comes to mind for you when you think about Abram, later known as Abraham, Father Abraham. Maybe you picture a shepherd. Maybe you picture a really old guy with a really old wife 
who sit around on the plains waiting for the pregnancy test to one day show a positive. But not many of us remember to think of Abram as the leader of a clan of maybe a couple thousand people. I mean, that's what it would have to be. I'm just guessing, but I mean, if you've got 318 trained men that are there to protect and fight, well, that's a big group of people. Not many of us remember to think of Abram as a general and a warrior himself. And not many of us remember to think of Abram as a king. But that's really what he is here. I know the text doesn't call him a king, but that's what he's doing. That's what he's acting like. Just like the Bible never calls Adam a king, it does paint the picture of him as God's vice regent on earth, right? He's called to have dominion, to subdue, and to multiply. And so Abram here, with this promised land and these people, He's protecting and defending and subduing and redeeming. And he is out-kinging the kings. He is a king of kings. You didn't think that title would ever be applied to Abram, did you? Of course, Lot didn't deserve to be rescued. Abram didn't have to go do this. He could have said, Lot, you made your bed in Sodom, and that's what you got. Abram instead risked his life and limb to go on this mission. And apparently it's because he believed what God had already told him back at the beginning of Genesis 12. God said, I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Abram believed God was on his side. Not because he deserved it, but because that's God's plan. A gracious plan and a gracious God. Oh, there's certainly the human element in going out to rescue Lot and his family. Abram did have trained men. There was strategy, yes. They went at night. They split up their forces. They were sneaky. There was skill involved here. And on that front, here we have sort of the full redemption of Abram remember back in chapter 12 the second half of chapter 12 his faith really faltered there a famine came and he went down to Egypt and in Egypt he feared for his own life in such a way that he lied about his wife he was willing to hand her over to Pharaoh's harem there in Genesis 12 Abram is a super coward But here in Genesis 14, he is a superhero. This is his bright and shining moment. One commentator said, this is his transfiguration, his fullest glories on display. 
And how encouraging this would be for those first readers, the first hearers of the book of Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Remember, the first hearers of Genesis were those in the days of Moses and Joshua who were about to enter the promised land, a land that God would give them, yes, but not without a fight. They would go to war against the Canaanites. Recall that time before they enter the land when they send spies in to see what it's like on the other side. And the spies return with the report, those guys are like giants and we are grasshoppers and we are in trouble. Well, Genesis 14 and Abram and his 318 men would be of such an encouragement to them. Abram's courage and selflessness and risk should be a great example and encouragement to us today. Oh, maybe not to pick up a sword or a glock and to go, you know, go on a rescue mission, although I, it, it makes me want to do that. It makes me want to be like a Russell Crowe figure and go find someone who's kidnapped somewhere. Maybe we should just call 911 instead, though, okay? But, but Abram is an example for us of doing hard, selfless things. Taking the gospel to the world. Leaving family and going to the mission field. Or, or risking a friendship with a friend as you tell them that you believe they're a sinner like you in need of grace, and Jesus is their only hope. That takes some risk. To do so, it might be a selfless thing, but Abram did the hard, risky, selfless thing. And yet, while Abram is a great example to us, while we want to imitate him in some ways, let's remember who his God is. Let's remember who really did this. Who pulled this off? God did. Isn't that the point of the 318 men? 318? 318 went out against armies that have just conquered and subjugated kingdoms. And the result? The 318 defeated them all got back all the stuff, all the people, and brought them home. Our God loves to do much with little. You think of Jonathan's words going up against the Philistines in 1 Samuel 14. He said, there is nothing that can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. He might use many, he often uses few. You think of that, that portrait of that principle in 1 Samuel 17 when little David goes up against the giant Goliath, not with sword, not with spear, but with a stone. You think of 1 Samuel 30, where David's 400 men 
go up against a mighty Amalekite army. And they win. Or Gideon and his 300 men going up against the Midianites. Remember, God kept cutting down the number until there were 300. Because God was intent to show, like here, little is much when God is in it. That theme traces all the way through to the cross of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 says that God has chosen to, to save us in the foolishness, the seeming foolishness of the cross. It seems like weakness looks like defeat. And it's the power of God unto salvation. And remembering that, 1 Corinthians 1, that principle, the cross, well, that maybe should make us think that maybe we're more like Lot in this story of Genesis 14 than like Abraham, the warrior king. Haven't we all gone astray? Haven't we all left the covenant? Haven't we all found ourselves in need of rescue. Have you? I hope you have. I mean, if it's painful in those circumstances of your city of Sodom, that's good. It's God saying, how's it working out for you? Turn to me. There is one who has come for you. Like Abram left safety and comfort and risked life in limb to go because a rescue was needed. Thankfully, there is one who came for us, who left the comforts of heaven, who took on flesh and became a servant like Beth read for us from Philippians 2. Or Colossians 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what God has done. And Abram, in Genesis 14, is a foreshadow of that. He prefigures the Savior to come. Of course, there is a final king of kings to come, but here... In this day of Genesis 14, in this bright, shiny moment in Abram's life, he is a king of kings. Thirdly, there is a priest king out of nowhere. Verse 17, after his return from the defeat of the kings, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, Two kings come out to greet Abram, king of Sodom, king of Salem. Now, one is infinitely more important than the other. Uh, so we'll treat the more important one second. That's the king of Salem. He's the king out of nowhere. But, but also in the story, there is a king of Sodom and that is something we need to talk about here. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hands to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap from you. 
What's going on there? Well, here is another test of faith for Abram. By the rules of the day in the ancient Near East, Abram had every right to all the spoils of war that he and his men got. To the victor goes the spoils, the saying says. And so he doesn't have to return anything to the king of Sodom. And knowing that, the king of Sodom tries to cut a deal. How about you take the goods and I take the people? And Abram refuses that offer. I won't take a sandal strap from you. I won't be in your debt. I won't have anyone saying that my wealth came from Sodom. And then he goes on to say, what my men have eaten, they have eaten. There's no getting that back. And what my Amalekite associates, Honor, Eshkol, Mamre, what they want to take, that's on them. But the rest I will not take because I have lifted up my hand to the Lord. I have made a covenant before God, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would trust him. That's what this signifies. Abram is looking to God alone to fulfill the promises in God's timing, in God's way. And gaining wealth by way of a sneaky deal with the king of Sodom would be, in Abram's mind, it would be a compromise. It'd be a signal of a lack of faith and lack of trust. It'd be thinking like Lot, looking to Sodom for a get-rich-quick scheme. So that's the king of Sodom. We can put him to bed. Then there's the king of Salem, Melchizedek. And here's the one who needs our careful attention. He's the king who comes out of nowhere. Let's read those verses again, verse 18 to 20. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now let's piece this together. There's a priest of the Most High God in these days. And we haven't heard about him yet in the book of Genesis. Where did this guy come from? His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. Pretty lofty. He's called King of Salem. Salem, like the Hebrew word shalom, peace. He's the King of Peace. Salem almost certainly later becomes known as Jerusalem. He's the King of Jerusalem before there was ever any other king in Jerusalem. And he knows something of what happened with Abram and his men, and he comes out with bread and wine, which represents hospitality for the tired warriors, sure, but it's not just bread and water, which would have been more common. Bread and wine signaled something of royalty. This is what you give kings when they return from battle. 
And he blesses Abram. Blessed be Abram by God most high. He blesses Abram's God. Blessed be God most high. Who has delivered your enemies into your hand. It's almost like he knows about Genesis 12 where God told Abram, I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and those who dishonor you I will curse. And then Abram, in response to this, gives Melchizedek a tenth of all that he has, paying him honor. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? Whoever he is, he is a king of kings, even greater than Abram. That's what the tithe signifies. You, you, you give that tithe in those days to honor the one in whose land you are currently dwelling. And then this Melchizedek guy, he not only comes out of nowhere, he disappears into thin air. He not only isn't in Genesis anymore after this, he isn't in the rest of the Old Testament except for one place. It goes a whole thousand years from Abram to a psalm that David wrote before there's this mention of Melchizedek. And he's only mentioned there for one verse. And then he's not mentioned in the rest of the Old Testament. He's not mentioned again in the Bible for a thousand more years until the book of Hebrews talks about him for three whole chapters. So that's what we got left. We got Psalm 110 and Hebrews. Fourthly, let's just give it its own heading. The warrior priest king to come. Turn to Psalm 110 in your Bibles. Psalm 110. I'll put at least a verse of it up on the screens if you don't turn there, but I'd like you to see it for yourself in your own Bible. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. As he once pondered his kingdom and God's promises about that kingdom, about his royal offspring to come. Verse 1 of Psalm 110, David says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, this is the exaltation of God's king. Look at verses 5 and 6, which looks like it could be describing Genesis 14. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. But it's verse 4 that needs our special attention. Here's the Melchizedek piece of the puzzle. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here's some background. David's predecessor, King Saul, disqualified himself for making sacrifices, for playing the role of a priest. A priest couldn't be a king, and a king couldn't be a priest. And David knows that. But one day as he's doing his Bible study, 
He remembers Genesis 14 and remembers that there was once one guy, at least, who was a priest king. Priests can't be kings. Kings can't be priests. There was one, though, Melchizedek, that man of mystery. So David's pondering God's promises to him about his eternal kingdom, an eternal throne. That's in 2 Samuel 7, if you want to read those promises. But David's pondering those promises and pondering the future surety of those promises. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he ties the curious case of Melchizedek, the priest king, into God's big promises for the Davidic throne. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? Well, as mysteriously as Melchizedek came and went in Genesis, he now reappears in Psalm 110, but just for the moment. A type of Melchizedek, however short this is, a type of Melchizedek will now forever be tied to the Davidic kingdom, the Messiah to come. I said there's no mention of Melchizedek in the rest of the Old Testament. That's true. But boy, he gets some attention in the book of Hebrews. So turn there. Melchizedek is dealt with in Hebrews 5 and 6 and 7. You can go looking for the references in chapter 5 and 6 on your own later. Hebrews 7 is where it digs into the history of Melchizedek that we have in Genesis 14. All the other references before in Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 6, they're referring to the Psalm 110 piece of the puzzle But Hebrews 7 takes us back to Genesis 14 and says this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Hebrews 7 is pointing us back to the very mysteries that we saw in Genesis 14, that there's this Melchizedek guy who's king and priest a king of righteousness, a king of peace, king of Jerusalem. And he comes out of nowhere in Genesis, as we saw. And that's significant because everybody who's anybody in the book of Genesis has a genealogy. You know who their daddy was, and then whose daddy that was. But not Melchizedek. Anyone who's important to the story and the plan of God in the book of Genesis, we have a record of their death but not Melchizedek. And it's not that Melchizedek was eternal. It's not that he didn't die. It's not that he was an angel. It's also not that he was some sort of pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, as some people 
think that he was. I don't think so. I mean, look carefully at the wording of Psalm 110, verse 4. David was foreseeing someone who would be of the order of Melchizedek. It'd be his kind. And then Hebrews 7, verse 3, it said of Melchizedek that he is resembling the Son of God, continuing as a priest forever. He resembles the Son of God. He's not the Son of God. No, Melchizedek is what we call a type of Christ. I don't mean a kind of Christ. I mean the the technical word type from which we get the study of typology. He's a foreshadow. He's an analogy of the one to come. In the story of Melchizedek, God was giving us a pattern to watch for about the one to come. And David clued in on that. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he, he thought it's going to be a king priest. We, we need it. Not just a king who will rule over us, but one who will intercede for us. We need one who doesn't just intercede for us, but also rules over us. We need a priest king, and that's what we have. An eternal one. We need a priest king who doesn't come and go. Jesus is that king. Of course, he was born, yes, but he is eternal. And forever he is the true king of peace and the true king of righteousness. And in him alone, righteousness and peace kiss. Thus, he's greater than Father Abraham. He's even greater than Melchizedek, who was greater than Abraham. He's the true and ultimate king and warrior and priest. He's not just a king priest. He's a warrior priest king. Remember that theme? He came for us. He came to rescue us. And more than risking his life, he gave his life. He laid down his life. Galatians 1, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us. That's the cross. The cross wasn't his defeat. It is where he conquered the enemies of Satan and sin and death. And he did it through his death. You say, that doesn't make any sense. 1 Corinthians 1, thought you might think that way. The foolishness of the cross, that's what some people think of it. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory now because of the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Can you say that? Christians don't believe that now, if you got Jesus right, you don't die. But there's this bit in the scriptures where it says, dying, you don't really die. Death isn't really death. Going to be with the Lord is far much better, the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 1. Jesus defeated death. One day it'll be no more altogether. For now, it doesn't sting like it used to. 
Oh, it stings for us when we lose family members, but it doesn't sting for those who go on to glory. In Hebrews 6, when it's talking about this Melchizedek stuff, it says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. Do you? Is this your steadfast anchor? Is this, is this what sinks to the bottom of the soul of your ocean and, and is planted there and holds you in place? I, I wonder, if you're not yet a Christian, I, I want, what are you banking on? What, what do you think will rescue you? Have you not yet found the bitterness of the city of Sodom? Perhaps God in his graciousness will show it to you soon. We all one day will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Whether we do it now in faith unto salvation or whether we do it under compulsion when he returns and throws us into eternal judgment, everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is the King. And we pray that you would do it today. We pray that today you would confess him and bow before him, that you would kiss the son, as Psalm 2 says. Brothers and sisters, these promises are ours. This Savior is ours. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No. Tribulation, wars, persecution, famine, danger, sword. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It doesn't matter what we face. If he goes before us, if he is with us, on account of the fact that he has already gone after us and rescued us and brought us home. And he will come again. He is not done. But until then, we fight. And we do hard things. And we say hard things. And we serve others selflessly. And we give. Oh, we have every reason to. What a glorious plan God has recorded for us in this glorious book what a glorious God it reveals what a glorious savior at the center of it all prophet priest warrior king that's my Jesus let's pray Oh, Lord, we thank you once again for your marvelous and at times mysterious word. We stand in awe of such a great and glorious plan, your plan to exalt your son. Would you exalt him in our hearts and in our affections and in our speech and in our trust of him? Oh, Lord. We thank you for a salvation so strong and we pray you'd be strong to save some here today who haven't yet come to believe these things. Perhaps today, perhaps even in the singing of this next song, you, Lord, would awaken their hearts to believe and you would be strong to save them today 
for your namesake. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.